welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Pluming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. And in this season of Talking Theology, it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today, exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. How might the study of astronomy shape the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves? How might scientific endeavours be part of pursuing knowledge about God? What role do questions play in the work of science and faith? What are the challenges and opportunities that scientists in churches encounter? And how does the perspective of space remind us of the beauty and fragility of our planet? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr Althea Wilkinson. Althea is an astronomer who has worked on major radio telescopes in the UK and overseas. And our title today is... How can studying the stars help us encounter the God of creation? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Althea Wilkinson, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much. I'm very honoured to be invited to talk to you. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your work as a scientist. Tell us about your career and how you have found yourself exercising different roles in your scientific research and endeavour. Right. Well, it's been a bit of a checkered career. I started out doing my PhD at Jodrell Bank, so in radio astronomy. Then I went with my husband to California for three years and did some optical astronomy there, got introduced to using big telescopes, which was very exciting. Not that the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank isn't a big telescope, but it's radio rather than optical. Then we came back and I switched to working on a theoretical astronomy. We're in more computational modelling of galaxies. So that was very interesting. I did I worked on stellar dynamics of galaxies for a while. Then didn't really take a career break but had two children and when I came back essentially uh, I hadn't really been able to keep up with my research enough so I stopped lecturing in the physics department and went back out to Jodrell Bank again and started working on cosmology from a radio and microwave point of view and that was when I started working on the Planck satellite which was really wonderful a a great experience a multinational endeavour which everybody was interested in getting the answers so uh, kept the arguments to a minimum (laughs) so I was very very focused and that was great and then since then I've become involved with the square kilometre array telescope which is actually arrays of hundreds of little telescopes in South Africa and thousands of little elements telescope elements which look really look like Christmas trees wire Christmas trees in Australia and we are working at the moment I've been working on designing the synchronization and timing part of that because you have to join all the telescopes together very accurately and we're just about to go out to 
contract to get people to really build it. So with a bit of luck, by the probably next year, we'll get real spades in the ground and really start building this radio telescope of the 21st century. That's a fantastic journey that you've described. You've described the radio telescopes that you've been involved in working on, going back to Judge Raw Bank and now the Square Kilometre Array Group. Perhaps you'd explain for our listeners what radio telescopes are looking for and perhaps some of the highlights and most exciting findings of your work over the years and perhaps what you're hoping this new telescope will enable us to research. Wow, lots of questions there. Okay, so what are radio telescopes doing? Well, they're receiving wavelengths that are longer, too long to fit in our eyes. So from a few centimetres or even smaller than that to metres, many, many metres. The reason we see what we do in the optical is because the wavelengths fit into our, our eyes. So we don't see radio astronomy. We have to receive it as radio signals. And it sounds really just like white noise, hiss on a, on a radio. But that does contain an awful lot of information if you know what to do with it. The things we're looking at range from the sun and planets out through stars, through nebulae, clouds of gas, to galaxies, and of course, to looking at the universe, what we can see as far out as we can possibly see. So quasars, black holes, all this good stuff that you see in sci-fi novels and movies and stuff, but they're really there. (laughs) So we are very, very broad range. What have been the highlights? What have been the things that have sent a tingle down your spine, perhaps? I think the thing that's the real highlight, the most tingle, was, as I say, being involved with the Planck satellite, which its job was to survey the very early radiation, the echo from the Big Bang, back as far as we can possibly see. I use the word see, but of course it's radio. But as far as we can possibly see it. And to actually be able to map that and to then be able to derive from that map knowledge of when that Big Bang event happened much, much more accurately than we've ever been able to do before. When I started astronomy, we didn't know it to within a factor of two. Now we know it to enormously better than that. And we can basically detect the light from about 380,000 years after that event happened, which is nothing in terms of the age of the universe. So it's very, very close to the Big Bang. And that was really exciting. So I think that was my best moment to be able to, you know, to put an age to the universe, our universe that we see, not necessarily the whole of creation, but our little bit of it. That sounds extraordinary to do. And as you say, it's something we see, but it's actually something we achieve by radio telescopes. Can I take you back before your first encounter with Jodrell Bank? You started your career when you were doing a PhD, but I wonder if you can take us back to when your first interest in astronomy came from. When was that? I think it was probably from when I was a child in Kenya, lying on the grass, looking up at the sky. And of course, you can see so much more of the sky in Africa or in dark bits of Africa. And just seeing the stars, it almost knocks you over backwards. Well, if I was lying on the floor, I was knocked over backwards already. But 
the sky is overwhelming when you can see everything that's up there. And I just wanted to be involved in finding out more about it. So quite early on, really. And how has the study of astronomy kind of impacted the way you see everything else and the world? In other words, I, I get this sense from you, Althea, this is this is something that kind of grips your imagination in the way that you see everything else. Is that true? Definitely, yes, I think. I mean, it, it means if you're used on a daily basis to thinking about things that are very, 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 very big and very old or happened a very long time ago, I think it gives you a little bit more perspective on the world. You know, you think in terms of the world as being a very tiny little planet around an insignificant star in a not very special galaxy in a rather unspecial corner of the universe. It does give you a bit of a perspective. You know, here we are thinking we're so important, but actually, in the grand scheme of things, it's amazing how how little we are, but also how fragile our world is and how little we take care of it, how much we take it for granted. We'll come back to that later on, if we may, as we explore the fragility of our world. But I wonder if I could turn now to your own faith. And you described yourself as coming to Christianity later in life. How did that journey happen for you? And could you just tell us a little bit about what that felt like? I think it was triggered by my mother's death and a feeling that basically this couldn't be everything. And in a way, it's it's coming at the same sort of questions. I've always been interested in the, you know, what's it all about questions from the science point of view. And this is the what's it all about questions from the theological or faith point of view and a, a feeling that, you know, there had to be a richness there that just thinking of one or just thinking of the other doesn't give you. So I think that was where it started. I went along to a, the local church that my daughter was going to with a friend because she said it's a good church and I should go along to it, which I did. It's a conservative evangelical, uh, well, it's complementary conservative evangelical church. And I have now left that church, but I owe them the great debt of gratitude of teaching me to look at the Bible and read what's in it very carefully. And I think God asked us to think about him with all our heart, all our mind and all our soul. And I think he doesn't mind being asked questions. I think he wants us to question. And therefore, I feel that the, the scientific questioning is, is really only a part of looking at what God has done and wanting to find out more about it. So that's where I came into science and faith from. I wonder if there was a particular point of the Christian gospel, the Christian faith, that you found particularly attractive or stimulating or interesting at that early stage of exploring faith. Was there something you talked about being encouraged to read the Bible closely for yourself? Was there something about, I don't know, the person of Christ or the, the heart of Christian faith that gripped you in a way? I think definitely. I think discovering that in Paul's eyes, Christ was the creator for whom and by whom all things were created. I think that was a, a stunning moment. Yeah, I, I think I think that 
that was it really, that uh, a new perception of this person I perhaps hadn't really thought about or understood very well before to see him as part of the Alpha and Omega. I think that was very, very influential. Mm. I wonder if you're referring to that Colossians 1, 15 to 20 passage when Paul talks about Jesus as the image of the invisible, the firstborn of all creation. That, that's right, yes. Did that begin to make connections because you were yourself researching the beginnings of creation, the beginnings of the universe, and suddenly you were being introduced to this person, as you say, through whom and for whom that whole universe, Paul says, was created. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, it, it definitely caught my attention and kept my attention and, and still does keep my attention, even though all, all sorts of waters flowed under the bridge since then. <laughs> yeah. You talked about the way in which this journey of faith has connected with your own science. Was that experience of coming to faith something that shaped the way that you saw your own scientific work and indeed wider work of scientists? Did you make those connections early on? Yes, I think I did, because I'm, I'm very deeply rooted in the science. And I believe good science is following God's thoughts after him. I'm quoting there, that's not an original thought, but it very much seemed to me that now I was thinking in terms of God and creation, that this was obviously what science was intended to do. We're exploring what God has done and finding out little by little what has been done. We're often completely astonished by it and always in awe of it. But I feel I feel God wants us to keep doing this, wants us to keep seeking and finding what he has done. It always seemed to me, you know, if you've created something as fantastic as a universe or a multiverse, wouldn't you want your creation inside it to be interested? And I think uh, I think the answer is yes. So I've certainly never seen any barriers to my faith posed by science in the slightest bit. You mentioned earlier that a lot of water had flown under the bridge since those first steps of faith. I wonder, just as faith doesn't stop with coming to faith, how have you navigated your scientific career and your personal faith since then? And I wonder, where have the joys and perhaps the struggles been? Oh, I think that the the joys have been this sense of the, the richness, the, the enrichment of one's thinking, being able to view things from both directions, and all the lovely people I've met along the way. I've met many, many wonderful people along the way, and it's been a great joy. The, the struggles have been with the, I, I mentioned the type of, of church I was in, uh, which I eventually found too, too narrow, too constricting. And I don't think God wants us to be narrow. I think there's a, a wideness in God's understanding and sympathizing. And, uh, you know, I, I believe we are completely right in coming to these questions from many, many different angles. So I'm at the moment still still searching for the right church. 
the pandemic has been wonderful. I've been able to attend all sorts of things like theology courses in, in Salisbury and church services all over the world. <laughs> but of course, one has to settle down and find one's community eventually. And I hope I'm getting closer to that now. How would you perceive the relationship between faith and doubt? Often people who have been walking with faith for some years talk about doubt as something that they become increasingly comfortable with in terms of seeing it not as the enemy of faith, but rather the other side of the same coin, really, part of the journey and learning to navigate the things which might provide an element of confidence and also those things where we don't know. Is that a journey you found yourself going on yourself? I certainly encountered a lot of questions, a lot of questions, because initially reading the Bible from a a sort of fairly literal point of view doesn't work very well for a scientist and doesn't work very well in many other ways. And so, yes, I've had a lot of doubts. I've had a lot of doubts. And as I say, I I believe God welcomes questions. I think if your faith is not asking any questions, I think it must have run out of steam somewhat. I think faith is so deep and so profound and our little minds are so struggling to come to terms with it. I think we should none of us be afraid of questions. You mentioned earlier that one of the things that studying astronomy has done and looking at things that are very, very old and very, very big is give a sense of perspective on our own lives. But you also talked about the way it gives a perspective on our world and how fragile it is. We're recording this interview, Althea, at the time of the COP conference in Glasgow, when the fragility of our own world from an environmental perspective is coming under entirely justified scrutiny. What's called contribution do you think astronomy can make to looking at these questions of origins? What contribution can this make to uh, an approach of care and attention at a time of climate crisis? Apart from just the question of the size and the, the relative smallness of ourselves, but just to it's more what the Earth looks like from outside. But if you look at the thickness of that atmosphere, it's so tiny. It's like a little thin plum skin on the outside of the world. And that's where we do everything. And that's what we're polluting. That's what we're generally altering in a way that we have just done heedlessly up to a few, well, I say a few years ago. I mean, I I remember reading Rachel Carson's Silent Spring way back many years ago now and thinking from then onwards, you know, humanity has got a problem. And I think now humanity is really at a crunch point and we have to do something immediately. We should have done it years ago. Hopefully we can rescue something if we act immediately. And I'm sure I share with many others the frustration that this doesn't seem to be very easy to get across to politicians and people who have vested interests. I've often wished the church would take 
more vigorous action. I think the church is beginning to take action now. I think it's something it's been rather slow to to take up on. But hopefully, you know, it's a significant population of people. And I think everybody who has a vote should be out there letting their MPs know that what they want is attention now to this problem. And perhaps, you know, all, all the other questions that um, seem to obsess the church or bits of the church are actually fiddling while Rome burns. This is the only one that's really important now and for many years to come. You articulated earlier the way in which a picture of Christ as the author of creation, the one for whom and through whom all creation was made. You described the way that gripped you as somebody who knew a lot about the beginnings of creation, and yet that brought a new dimension to your understanding. Does that picture of Christ as author of creation add a particular impetus and dynamic to this care for creation that you see as so urgent? Absolutely. If this is Christ's creation and we've been set here to look after it, we're doing an appalling job so far. Uh, We really do need to, (laughs) really do need to improve. No, it's almost painful to think that something so precious and so beautiful we have treated with such disregard. And Basically, I feel you can look at it with the point of view of a a sin of humanity, really, that we have not collectively done better. And we, we need to be asking for forgiveness and asking for help in putting it right immediately and continuously. One of the organizations you've been involved with over the past, I know, is Scientists in Congregations. Just explain what that organization aims to do. And in particular, perhaps how you've experienced it as being a a scientist in the church. Yes, because many scientists do have a profound faith. I think what the organisation aims to do is to bring the scientists who do have a faith to talk to people who are not scientists in churches and address this historic What's seen as a confrontation, but as I say, I've never been able to really see it as a confrontation. For people who are perhaps not knowledgeable at all about science, it seems that science is threatening faith. And perhaps for scientists, they seem to think that faith is not exactly threatening them, but irrelevant. And the idea of scientists in congregations is basically to bring the two sides together and to to show that you can believe and understand good science and yet have faith and that the two aren't in conflict. So that was what we basically tried to do by um, getting scientists who are Christian to, to talk to various congregations and to let them ask questions, to let them ask all the questions they want to and try and bring this about. And what was your experience doing that? And were there particular questions that scientists you found wanted to ask and were there any questions which they found themselves perhaps afraid to ask but really needed to? I suppose there are a lot of points which if you're if you're going to be nitpicking and critical you can pick out of the 
Bible and say this is not literally true. But of course, that's not what the Bible means or what the way it's written. A lot of it is wonderful metaphor. So I think that's more more the attitude one encountered was this sort of very matter of fact, you know, this isn't a fact sort of approach. But coming from the other other angle, it was the, but this isn't following exactly what's said in the Bible, therefore it can't be right. You know, to the other extreme. And I think hopefully we did achieve something in the way of getting both sides to be perhaps a little more, a little more gentle, a little more tolerant and a little more willing to listen to each other. Althea, you spoke earlier about lying on your back under the African sky and being awestruck at the stars above and the size of the universe. And of course, you're in good company with the psalmist who takes a similarly contemplative approach to the universe and finds in that place a reason to praise God. I wonder, to our listeners on this podcast, might you encourage us perhaps if we were to go out to the sky tonight and look at the stars, what might you encourage us to contemplate, to consider, to think about that might inspire awe and perhaps invite us to praise? I think if it's a very nice starlit night, I think the thing to look for is the Milky Way. If you look for the Milky Way, you then realise that that is the city of stars that you live in. I mean, our star, as I say, is not very special, not in a special place in this city. You're looking through the thickness of 100,000 million stars there. And that is one of hundreds of thousands of millions of galaxies. And you can just go on in your mind, going further and further away into larger and larger scales. And the structure and the beauty and the the wonderful things out there just go on and on and on. And I, I think that's that's something to think about and to I think one can't help but offer praise and thanksgiving for that. So amazing. I'm sure many of us listening will take you up at your invitation, either tonight or on a clear night to come. Althea Wilkinson, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information about Cranmer Hall, please visit cranmerhall.com.